education in general is about self-sovereignty, is about liberty, and is about how to think about yourself and what you want to do, where you want to go based on it. Web3 is probably the last resort or the last societal or the beginning of the new societal linchpin where those thoughts are most vibrant. And that is where we can go back to the values that we adhere to, mainly lost, and retrieve it back. That was Agon from Ludium, a Web3 education venture in Korea and co-organizer of ETH Soul. On this podcast, we go on a wild journey. As we try to unpack how he got into crypto, why is he doing education, and how Nier has grown so much in Korea, we go on an incredible exploration of Korea's past and all the elements that make this a unique place for crypto. We cover everything from history, philosophy, education, technology, user experience, and more. We take many tangents, and at times it may seem random, but trust me, all the storylines weave in together quite nicely towards the end. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do, and without further ado, let's listen from Agon. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, it is an absolute honor to have with me, Agwin. Agon. What's fuck? I've been saying this wrong for weeks now. In my defense, as you probably see on the title, A-G-W-N. Yes. There are some letters missing there. <laughs> that's Greek. So, yeah. Greek? Yeah, W. It's supposed to be Omega. The, okay. I guess I can come up with my story of how I came to be that I've gone. So, I'm not gone. I run a Web3 education onboarding station community in Korea. And the name Lulio. Initially comes from Latin. It comes from the opening Ola Ludens. It's a Johan Harzinger. He's a historian during World War II, I think Dutch. He wrote a book named Ola Ludens, which is like Homo sapiens. His thesis is revolving around that humans are born to play. Ludens means to play. Ah, nice. See, I was going to claim my ignorance on this being something Korean. Oh. But you've just made me realize that you're a fake Korean. Well, I studied Latin and Greek when I was in college, so. Oh, nice. Yeah. So there's a really interesting thread because Rima, who you've met, she's with Proximity now, near Korea. She also studied in Belgium and she studied philosophy. Yeah. So for people listening to this podcast, most likely they've come into the ecosystem since I recorded my podcast with her. I think it was like the third podcast or something. We went on a beautiful tangent, our philosophy. Yeah, she's so amazing, by the way. Yeah, I was going to mention that like, you are one of the inspiring figure who got me into the analysis. And she was one of one of the others. Yeah. I think we're a power couple. We should have an arranged marriage. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to go back to the uh, Ludium and the Agon. So I was reading that book. And so Ludium means to play. And when, when I was... Coming up with the name for the project that I was doing. It incidentally means playing and school at the same time. Like the word school itself is from Greek etymology school, which is both to play and to, to be in a gymnasium or the educational institution. So yeah. And the Eum, which is like probably familiar to a lot of around crypto people, Ethereum, Eum means land or like the territory. So land of play, that school. That was where Nudium came from. And when I was coming up with the name for Nudium, I was trying to set up a Web3 identity for myself. 
and one of the words that came within that book was agar, which is which means community or a competitive play. So that's not your real name. No, it's not my real name. It is an identity that I gave to myself. Yeah. Oh, that is some real gangster, like Anon-ish. Because I'm AVB. Yeah. Which everyone knows me by AVB, like they've seen my face. I'll probably share a photo of this podcast afterwards. But not many people actually know my name. Yeah. So it's like a really nice pseudonymity where people know you, but they don't know who you are kind of thing. The identity that you present to yourself or that you are trying to be or trying to live up to it. Um, name is one of it. And then how you live up to it or the or deeds are the other features of it. Yeah, I get what you in a very Greek way, yes. I think that in modern times, we can probably identify a third category. Um, yes. Around uh, the visual perception. If you look at something like Grey Layer 1, which is probably an interesting sort of glimpse into what the metaverse might look like. I think that having so much flexibility around the character that you build, it doesn't even need to have human features, makes it very interesting. In a way, that speaks a lot to the whole phenomenology of PREs and the NFTs. And that's like the beginning of the like visualization, or I would say sense, senses. I would visual is one thing for me, like all the other different senses also come together. For me, I'm usually more prone to auditory senses rather than visual aspects of it. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you in terms that the whole prospect of metaverse is to try to bring back the senses of digital reality, so we say, into the commingled with the reality as we see it. I don't know if you may be too young. I was too young, but I had an older sister and I got the width of it. It's like a cultural thing now. Around MySpace, you could customize your MySpace, including audio. So when people went to your MySpace, uh, they would listen to the music or whatever you put on. And these were the times where they were like emo teenagers. Yeah. There's some MySpaces. You'd go to them and it just fucking starts blasting this horrible, mental, like very intense space. Makes me wonder if there is go or if there's demand for something like that. We, we went from the hyper-customized era to a very standardized era. In some ways, people could argue that is why Facebook succeeds. They were like, look, people have no idea about user experience or user interface. Let's just create one neatly packaged experience that is the same for everyone and which is populate and it works. But as we enter into the era of AI, and even if we look at something like near blockchain operating system components, people being able to really mix and yeah. match. Maybe we will enter the time where we can have our space in the metaverse and have some music with it. The some I didn't think for you, so I'm less familiar with MySpace, but there's a very similar concept in Korea called Zyro. Whenever there's a concept of metaverse that comes out, time world is always mentioned. It's like you get a room of yourself. In your room, you get a character. And then you can put your utensils. It's basically like an empty. I was actually talking to the founder of that company. She was in 2000, she was actually, this, there's an article about Cyword founders discussing whether that digital property is a property of a user or the property of the company itself. So that concept without the NFE and the whole blockchain, they were something that, well, they, because there was a digital currency called Lotori, which is like a 
eat more. So you get, you have one eight dollars, which is like point one dollar like that, and you can buy stuff. And then second life and all the metaverse um, that were iterating. 2000s had that kind of concepts, but it was just without the needs to actualize the property of individuals or decentralized payment system. So we call it the whole value transfer of a blockchain. How old is this platform? Is it still current? What year roughly was the article pondering on the ownership released? It was early 2000s, which is coincidental with the whole MySpace because like before Facebook dominated the social network and Facebook and Instagram dominated the whole social network, that was that aspect of like early 2000s. That service was, I think, got stopped and then it was tried to reverse itself with the blockchain elements to it, but it didn't work that well. So I think it's a gone history now, but yeah, that was that. Interesting. Because uh, yeah. I remember... As a young child, I was very prolific, very into The Sims, and I bought several of the packages, including the dating one, which is weird for a kid. Roller Coaster Tycoon, I loved. There was one, I can't remember, the one where you build cities. Minecraft, maybe, or... I never got into Minecraft. Oh, really? Yeah, and I grew up in Venezuela, so it was actually the early days of buying stuff online. But also there was an extra layer of the logistics of shipping things to Venezuela. So I was a kind of kid where I would literally do all the research and put a plan in place. And then my parents were like, yeah, oh, this, my dad, he's, yeah, we'll trust you with this. I did get scammed once. I bought a mobile phone and a Nokia. Those were the good days and I got scammed. But the games, it was cool. Like I'd ship it to like Miami and then there's this company that sends it over to Venezuela and then you pick it up from postal office um but yeah the this is an interesting topic and we're like less than 10 minutes in and we've already gone in a beautiful tangent because a lot of people have become dismissive of the metaverse but my theory is that it's easy for people to become dismissive and even i am a very harsh critic when you put the blockchain first because a blockchain as a tool and as a technology doesn't really stand for anything and if you put the blockchain first Usually what people put second is how to make money. So now you're like two layers deep with the wrong approach. But if you were actually to put the product first and the user experience first, then you start looking at it with completely different lenses because you realize that this new set of tools in the blockchain actually gives you superpowers to expand on a product or an idea that we had before. We think of something like The Sims. The easiest way for me to explain the metaverse to someone would be, imagine if The Sims had the ability for anyone to create items and sell them. You can create an item, fantastic designer in Korea. I can buy it in Venezuela. We're transacting real money or whatever, magic money in this world online. And there's so much you can build in. You could literally have designer assets. There's a limited amount of these couches and you could build all these stories around these assets. Oh my God. Digital Kim Kardashian fucked in that couch. But that, and tell that kind of story. That's where the value yeah. comes from. It's I mean, never the technology. And the, the whole attachment. No one cares about the technology. We need to have something that draws us in and the user needs to make it theirs. This is my cap now. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I like about Metaverses, as you mentioned, is that it's very sensible. It's very visual, it's very auditory, it's very like touching. 
in the sense that I literally can touch, could be. I don't know which metaverses you've been in, but yeah, that, that whole aspect of sensory impulses and being able to feel it and being able to be in it, I think is very important. So I am a very for the sensory experience, but I'm a guy who's much more into the conceptual things or the underlying value of the entire phenomena. Well, I guess that's what I, what drew me into crypto more than the metaverse because like I see seeing things and experiencing things, but at the same time, I usually try to sit down and contemplate what that really means to me more so than the immediate like sensory impulses that come into me. That's what I really like about the whole blockchain and the metaverse intertwining. But at the same time, as you mentioned, it like it's got to be chicken and the egg problem, right? I mean, there's got to be technology of both at some point to be intertwined, but at the same time, more people like to feel things rather than just to like me to sit down and think. He probably goes back to that element of customization that we mentioned before in right. how different products, their success or failure really comes down through how the experience can adapt to the user. Each is very individual characteristics. Some people are more creative, some are more analytical, exactly. some are more about experiences, some are more about fixed, predictable things. Mm -hmm. yeah. The first question. Okay. That I, we're, getting to, we're getting to a real show now. <laughs> the first question that I ask every guest is, and we've started on Python yet, but I want to put it to you formally. How did you get into the wonderful world of crypto? Young, bright man from Korea could have potentially done anything. Why crypto? It goes back to like my youth, young, when I was very young. So when I was in like fifth grade in elementary school, which was probably when I was like 11-ish in age, I got to a point where I was really fed up with Korean society. Um, At 11 years old. Yeah, 11 years old. It was a very stark, it's a very vivid experience too, because during elementary school, there's usually after school cleanup session. Students, designated students, take turns to clean up the classroom after class, which is fine with me because it's an ecosystem, right? Classroom is an ecosystem. And to be self-sustainable, someone's got to do the job of cleaning. So I'm fine with that. But the question that I had to myself one day was that students are doing the clean. Why are teachers sitting down and just oversighting? There could be reasons for it. There are some obvious reasons of, if not hierarchy, but authority, or at least the division of work, so to say, which is fine with me, but I just, one of those days when I was young, I had that question. I asked it to the teacher and then that day I got whacked, like literally whacked like that. So what got to me is that physical violence as a thing. I won't say I'm entirely opposed to it in the sense that physical violence is a way of, if not subduing, at least ex exercising your opinion or a way of, if not persuasion, at least a very forceful way of conjecturing yourself. What's fine. Physical violence happened. But the problem that I had was that, is it so wrong to ask that question? Is it so wrong to ask why it is that way? And then it got to me that in Korea study, it's impossible to ask a question. So that led me to go to United States and eventually to attend college. And in States, when I was attending college, 
I went to, you mentioned philosophy. I went to liberal arts, which means we read dead people and old books, like for the entire four years. So while doing that, it came to my mind that all these dead people and all these old folks had similar questions in their own time, in their own way about humanity, about themselves, about the society that they're exposed to. How should I live and why are things this way? whether it be physical phenomena or human values, just in general. Through going through all this, it came to my mind that, and the entire experience of my college year gave me hope that humans don't have to live that way or society doesn't necessarily have to be that rigid or could have room for discussions and liberty and people can live free if they choose to and when the situation permits. So the whole basis of that, at least, is though you need the right kind of community, right kind of setting in which those opinions can be expressed, listened, discussed, and based on a certain type of understanding, be able to come to another consensus of a sort. But the question from my mind is that how could that community come about? How are we going to make society more liberating for each other based on certain values? That was possible in my college years, I think, because it was a very small community and it was based on a very strict consensus that we're reading these kind of books for four years and where we are dedicating ourselves to that. But in a more scalable society as an open world, it, it becomes very much more difficult because there is so complex, so much complexity of values conflicting each other. And so many illiterate people are general. That's one way, but or I'm illiterate or people don't generally want to read book to begin with. So yeah, that is a really weird phenomenon that I have these days when I read a book or even when I read documentation, I get distracted because I keep thinking, oh my God, this is expressed so well. And the ideas here are so powerful. I wish more people hear this. And it's probably a dire sign over time where I'm like, I need to make a TikTok about this so that more people know. But it's obviously possible to capture an entire line of thinking yeah. and all the information goes into making a good argument in a 30-second TikTok. It's great that these people, while dead, remain alive in yeah. books. To add on to your point, I believe change in media, like from like books to movies to series like YouTube, 15 minutes to TikTok. I think that's just inevitable. So that can go by. But the fundamental question that goes along with it is that how are those, like how much thoughts are put into it? And do people have enough time to immerse into it and be able to really discuss it? My issue with a lot of things these days is because we're hyper-connected, it's very easy to fall into groupthink. And when you fall into groupthink, it is much easier to go for the lowest comes coming here. It is true that as a distribution channel, new media has immense power. I just don't like that we are converging towards the lowest common denominator while almost pushing out the highest common denominator. People saying books have no future. I'm like, we missed progressing. If we just have TikToks. The centralization of ideology in a way that is it through this, it might be through distribution channel or it might be through medium or it might be through just thought leaders or a few 
leaders that are just co converging into it. And as you mentioned, by doing so, people become least com common denominator of that thought. For example, Christianity, I like reading Bible and Christianity, I think is a great, not just as a religion, but as a philosophy, but as a history, it's a great book for me. Bible is a book, really good book. But the question that I have for Christians, for example, is that, do you read Bible? Right? I mean, you hear, hear Bible from a priest, which is fine. You can have filtered sources into it, but do you really read it? And do you really think about it on your own? That I think is really some way of touching on to your point of centralization. Yeah. It's, it's something that should be relatable to people in, in this field. In history, I studied liberal arts at a goal. In history, we talk about first-hand sources. And even if you go to law, you've got like different levels of evidence. Or whether you saw something or, or whether you direct heard, evidence or whether someone yeah. said they yeah. saw something or like fear. Yeah. You can't give it the same weight. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely challenging to have most of reality mediated with this less, which is interesting enough. It mm -hmm. takes us back to blockchain as a way to almost timestamp. Exactly. What was true, what the original source was. But I'd like to take it back to your college days uh -huh. and there's two things that really caught my attention in address and one by one. I'll talk about one or forget about the other one as I often do. <laughs> whichever. Whichever comes first. The first one is what were some of the thinkers and dead people mm. books that had the most impact uh -huh. to you during college? And the second one is I'm a student of history. The more you study history, the more you realize you don't really know are any elements about Korean history in particular mm. that creates, it seems like a binary model to me, whereby the country is free, feels advanced, mm -hmm. can see a lot of progress, but there is obviously some mm -hmm. historical and cult elements that may, may in yeah. one direction yeah. or, or another. Definitely. I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned the cleaning session after school. From my trip in Korea, I've identified many things that I've heard about overseas, but from Japan. And that's when you realize that like Korea and Japan have a lot of things in common. I can tell you in my school, not a representative sample, but take it as it may be. It was the opposite. Kids are entitled. You pay people to clean and you treat them like shit and you have a multi-tier society. So you'd have the teachers sitting over the kids mm -hmm. and the kids sitting over the cleaners. And oh. it's a, it creates a very different culture. So it's interesting that even though you were smacked and subdued in, yeah. in, in negative ways, just having the notion of you clean after your space, it's kind of cool. I mean, that notion itself, interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So let me get back to your first question. Because the issue for you was why is that person who also shares this space not participate? I don't think that your issue was why am I cleaning this? Dude, I can go. Yeah, that's the question that I had. Yes. Go to any high school in South America and make the kids clean after school and they'd be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. First question yeah. thinkers and that people. Yeah. I used to say that I have three books that I read every year since my freshman year in college. So one's Plato's Republic. The other is Siji from the ancient history of China. It's a very grandiose book. I really love history. You mentioned history. So I love Thucydides, Plutarch, and Artus, and like Leviticus, and yeah, Levi, all the discourses on Levi by Machiavelli, all kind of stuff. But I believe that Chinese historian to be the most grandiose in terms of depth, 
and in terms of the volume and the amount of work that he puts in. Until like last year or two, I, more like three years ago, the third book was Thus Books on So Plato, Chinese Australian, and the and Nietzsche. But uh, third book, I don't read it as much these days. I read. I take more time to read all the different like crypto articles and the recent ones. As a perfect segue for the second question, far fact for you, Nietzsche, which I'm going to try to pretend I'm pronouncing correctly, right? He's also top three for ring. I would believe that. Who yeah. also grew up in Korea and by living overseas, I think when it's a very interesting cultural way of being. Yeah. Rediscovering Korea with coming back. I'll put the second question to you. Yeah. What would you say are some of the elements of Korean history that mm. have shaped that? And then and the reason why I ask is because most people that go into crypto have a very strong drive that despite what Gary Gensler might be, mother bugger, it's actually not driven by money. And it's actually not even like a hobbyist, cool technology kind of thing. It is driven by a much deeper sense of this is a path forward. Whatever the historical mess, baggage, and legacy mm-hmm. institution, once you see the potential of the technology, it is really drawing in a lot of people that are mm-hmm. motivated to make it happen. And that's the vision that we sometimes struggle to illustrate mm-hmm. because people are fucking flipping aims. But yeah, I'd be really curious to see how that history plays into your story. I think Korea has a very diverse history from the very beginning, but to mention the most recent ones. So at the end of the last time dynasty of a Korean peninsula, which was Joseon dynasty, there was, it was the time. What period are we talking about? Like end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century. So yeah, that's when the, the whole imperialism or the colonialism was going into its peak right before the dawn of the first world war and Japan was subdued by America and then they modern, so to say, modernized to a new country, but Korea was going through that transition. That was the period when Korea was greatly divided because there was a traditional dynasty still in hand. There were young, newly thinking, study abroad, thoughtful people. Who some of them betrayed the so say betrayed the country because they well handed literally pull up the Chosen Dynasty handed over to Japan. Some of them were um, similar. Um, some of they they were also erudite and more experienced more abroad, but at the same time they wanted Korea to be preserved. So those kind of forces were going on at that time. Something similar happened during nineteen seventies in Korea as well. That was when the democracy was trying to sprout. And eventually, I personally believe, my father will probably try to kill me if we're seeing this, but I personally believe Korea gave up on democracy and just chose another path. So the 70s or more recent? 1970s. Yes. So the reason why I'm starting from like the beginning of the 20th century is that were driving forces that moved all the way to the Korea War. So after Japanese annexation ended, there were like those who tried to seek independence. Actually, in North Korea... The founder of North Korea was one of those independent independence liberator in Manchuria and the in China. So, so just in case some listeners don't know, it's actually me and it doesn't know. I'm assuming I'm a five year old that discovered Korea exists yesterday. 
when you mentioned the transition from the imperial and colonialism in the twentieth, late nineteenth, twentieth century, is that imperialism or colonialism from which country? Because in other countries like Hong Kong, Singapore had British yeah. colony. What was the situation in Korea? For a brief period of time, there was America and there was Russia, but mostly Japan. Japanese annexation happened officially on 1990, 1919, or 19, no, 1906, 05, anyway, 03, whichever. But it happened much before, before during nine, 18, like 90, 70s, stuff like that. So the mission is the previous podcasts. Hopefully people go and check it out. There is a fantastic book. It's a biography of Lee Kuan Yew from Singapore. I think I read a lot more yeah, yeah, yeah. book than from an actual history yeah. course. And in details, in very vivid role, a little detail, yeah. the Japanese occupation and that him studying law in the UK. Yeah. And once again, like these were events that set mm-hmm. Singapore in a very specific course. Mm-hmm. And you may even say that then being kicked out of Malaysia was mm-hmm. even an attempt from Malaysia to preserve its own identity and keep us south. At what point does North Korea split or, or what the... So what after Japanese annexation, it was 1909, I think. 1909, it happened. So there was like different forces of people who were trying to subdue to Jap- the Japanese government, whereas others were trying to seek independence. That they were usually working not inside the Korean peninsula, but usually like different parts of China. And some of them were actually in, in America. One of the first, the first president of Korea, who later became first president of Korea, was um, doing some of that work in America. So when Second World War was ending, those forces were trying to come back and try to do independence work. But at the end, the, eventually, it wasn't by, for example, South Korea was not did not find its independence by its own force, which is very funny in a way because France, after Normandy, that the American liberated them, or the American ended the Second World War, but they still consider the De Gaulle and the um, French government, early French government, as the legitimate hire or the legitimate independence force. But in Korea, that never happened because they never come, came to a consensus of who is actually the legitimate throne or legitimate government in Korea. I think that was one of the, that conflicting force that I was mentioning. Who are the contestants? There were three, actually North Korea is one of the contestants because North Korea and the Kim Il-sung, as I said, is very, was, I mean, they at least, they came with Soviet Russia later, but um, they at least had the force that were deriving themselves to, if not occupy, at least liberate Northern part of Korea. So they were actual entity. Funny thing about the end of the Second World War and Korean independence is that the treaty signed for the Korean War, the end of Korean War, and that's when the Korea officially split. And that's when Korean government was officialized. In that document, South Korea is not in there. America, China, North Korea signed that treaty, the end of Korean War. The, the whole Korean War is extension after the liberation because 1945, I think it was the liberation and 1956 or something like that was Korean War. During that time, they were trying to figure out like who's doing what, who's where, stuff like that. 
That is very interesting. I'm trying to see if there's some principles that we could try to distill once again to feed back into what drives people here. And I've noted many times that Seoul is one of those cities that I feel like it doesn't really sleep. You can see people just hustling. It's a very different vibe from New Zealand. <laughs> I imagine. I've never been to New Zealand, but yeah. Yeah, people are chilling. There's nothing that you're chilling. If a person in 2023 hears about North Korea, they would be very quick to associate with like very isolated regime, depending on how you look at it, weak economically, mm-hmm. etc. And if they were to hear about South Korea in 2023, we've gotten to the point where some people would even get offended if you ask which Korea. There is only right. South Korea. Economically, culturally, you know, you've got K-pop, you've got... Right. Yeah. So I didn't know about the treaty in South Korea not being in there, but... Still, it's not there. Still, it's not there. And I can't help but imagine that setup always being placed as the underdog and having to prove that your model or the chosen path is the right one and constantly having to legitimize or rise up to whatever standard yeah. there is. I think it affects greatly. That's when, whenever there's a legislation passing in Korea, like funny thing, like you're, you're mentioning Gary Gensler, right? SEC recently. Fucking uh, Gary. Fun Gary. And Gary, I don't know if it's SEC or Gary, I can't even tell anymore, but uh, Mantic and Solana or which, wh- what was the other one? The other one could. Uh, there's Gary. a list of about 13 of them. Right? Yeah. Across two different lawsuits, file coin. Yeah. A file coin, I mean. Allegedly near. <laughs> is it in the list? It is. is it? On the, That's funny. In, in one of the lawsuits, maybe. The problem with this lawsuit is that one side is alleging unregistered security trading and they're looking at staking platform. Blah, blah, blah. But the other side of the claims is commingling of funds and I guess more inappropriate business practices. Yeah. That would be more on the FTX side. Money, like private money being funneled in different ways. And the important, the reason why making that secret is important is because if you look at the unregistered security argument, to me, it is very disingenuous because even if these exchanges reach an agreement with the SEC tomorrow and they come forward and register and they are allowed to trade securities, guess what? They can only trade registered securities. So the SEC seems to have deliberately not going after these foundations because they would have to prove in court whether they're securities or not. Uh They skipped that step. They went to the exchange and said, you can't trade on registered securities. They probably sign a deal tomorrow, trade registered securities, but none of those coins are registered. (laughs) And where things get very paradoxical is, okay, fuck it. So when a foundation wants to come forward and register as a security, they can't. Because it's decentralized. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's a funny catch to situation. Lawyers are going to make billions on this. SEC <laughs> is probably no doubt. I'm thinking they're going back into the law. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so going back to the... So the reason why I was uh, mentioning about the security is that recently Korean uh, security exchange equivalent government body announced right after SEC announced something, they announced just like similar statement. They say it's on their own decision or blah, blah, blah. But it's, it seems very obvious that like Korea 
government legislation tend to follow, on the one hand, America very closely. On the other hand, either China or um, Europe. But it is very hard for them to come up with their own. That's, that, that identity is I really entangled in there. Okay, this may be a terrible analogy. For people listening, the way that a creative mind works and a creative mind with ADHD works is you get the spark of an idea and as you entertain it, it keeps evolving. It's like the Photoshop generative AI now. You get a glimpse of an image and then you click expand and more of the image keeps generating. So sometimes a full image may not be what you were expecting, but we'll run with it. Look, sometimes I think about it as being Hispanic, culturally, but well and living in Australia. You don't try to speak Spanish in Australia because you're surrounded by English speaking. And you don't try to go to a nightclub and you get pissed off because they're not playing Despacito. Although <laughs> sometimes they do. You need to be very pragmatic about what it takes to survive and thrive in that circumstance. And that's why I want to bring up history because South Korea, if you look at a map, I can probably throw a rock and hit North Korea. It's like it is so close to an area that most of the world associates as a hotbot and possible conflict. Over time, all the podcasts that have listened to it and continent consumed, this is very interesting deterrent against a war in North Korea. You know what it is? What is it? Russia and China do not want to have millions of North Korean refugees going to their countries. So the minute something happens there, Russia and China come in. And then you've got Japan across the road. We're here before. So you're like, we're friends because we're friends against them. But we're also no friends because you're <laughs> you used to be here. It's like your ex and you've got a kid. You have to go not in a good way. You don't want to keep your ex, but you've got a kid together. See, this is the example of not the best analogy, but so if you were to place anyone in the same situation, I don't think that would come up with a different scenario. Yeah. If you give me those options, yeah. we've got these crazy people there. The other two crazy over there are psycho eggs down the road. Fuck it. The Americans are fantastic. They're far away. They're bringing some stability, whatever, they've got some submarines with the nukes and shit. We can be friends with them. So as, a, as you're saying, it is understandable to an extent because it was a survival tactic and it worked pretty well when you were going back to how you're mentioning about North Korea and South Korea, the economical differences now. And South Korea did a selling, astonishing job. They were diligent, hardworking, and they made it. Well, what is called Miracle of Han River. They've done it. And then it's it's now, if not most stable, it now became some kind of an entity that has a footholding. If not globally, at least in its domestic or in its way of beyond surviving. It got to that point, I believe. So I see a lot of similarities. The more that I learn, I see a lot of similarities between South Korea and Israel. Yes. Economic miracles yes. surrounded by adversity. It, it's a country that has to reinvent itself and stay relevant and grow in its presence. And this is going to tie very nicely. And we will move into that. We'll have a toilet break yeah. and then we'll move into that. Into what Web3 is in Korea in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. The question that I wanted to ask you, but we'll just like blend it all together mm-hmm. in, in the sake of time. I know you're a busy person. Do you think that if some of the concepts that you encountered in college, which some of these books mm-hmm. and ideas are very old, if though 
were more widely distributed, available, and discussed by the general populace that some, if not most of the conflicts of the last century have been avoided. And that is a segue into why Illudium and why education mm. in Web3. We're back. Yeah, we're back. In nice, refreshed, pissed. <laughs> pissed off. Yeah, your question was two, two parts. If you were asking me whether if Web2 or the conventional world or the public could have discussed the ideas that I was talking about, the dead people or the liberals more, would the world been better? And then the other thing was why Web3 and why education in Web3? We may even cheat and travel across time and space and add to the first idea, almost like a second category. Could these ideas and ability to think and reason through problems have avoided some of these challenges? Second one would be, could blockchain technology or the ability for people to coordinate action could have solved some of these problems? Because I think that either yeah. one would lead to yeah. why Ludium and why education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it comes back to the your first question of why did I come into crypto? Because we didn't fit I didn't finish that question to begin with. But but yeah, as I said, like during the college, my question was that and why I got into crypto is really entangled with your question right now because people won't read books just by books are there and they're great ideas and there are values that were set like two thousand years ago. And if we just live steadfast to it we would have been so much better, but we just don't do it. The thing about it is that we can't enforce it. The whole premise of those ideas is that it is about self-sovereignty and is about being liberal and being true to yourself and doing what you believe is right and try to figure out your own things. The thing is, in this conventional world, I personally believe that it's much more difficult because the society was set, the classroom example that I was mentioning, it's very hard to question and it's very hard to go back to your origin or be true to yourself. That's why I was drawn to Web3 and crypto, not just because of its technology, but at least it had that onset or the vibrance and people around it was tending towards it, whether it be because of the decentralization or whether it be performance ideology or some other factors that are involved with it. People are that minded to begin with. And the transfer of value, the technology itself is enhancing that feature by reducing intermediaries and direct transfer of values, even though it is still up in the air, whether that technology alone will be the groundwork for the better society or the going back to the origin. It definitely comes with age and something that I find hilarious is my dad born in 1954, same as Steve Jobs, same as Bill Gates, right. same as the, there's a very distinguished 1954 right. generation. Boomer generation, yes. My father's that age too. Yeah. The timing of them being in college and the computers just coming online, it was just like, it maps very nicely. Malcolm Latwell has a very good book about that. I saw a photo of him studying in Canada in Ottawa. Long hair, homeless, sitting on the top of a car. It was yeah. summer of love. Everyone's high. Seventies, yes. And what I told people is the hippies of the seventies are the conservatives of today. Yeah, exactly. Republicans, Tories, whatever. So something happened in their lifetime. Something happened in yeah. the lifetime of an individual. 
that your perception of reality starts to change. And I never disclose my age, but people can probably figure it out by everything I've done and when. <laughs> I'm at that stage now where when I was 20, we're all doing the same thing. But when you hit 30, you start to realize some people have a mortgage and kids and a career, and some people are unemployed and going to raves. And these are very broad generalizations, but I guess it, it highlights the self-sovereignty aspect. We've got these really interesting dynamics whereby we want to maximize for that freedom and options, but we're not so quick to own our decisions or, or the outcome. And this becomes more pronounced over time. That's why I think that with social media, it's a choose your own adventure, but I have definitely seen almost like a resurgence of trying to capture in a very vivid way, a sensory way, how different paths, look. for instance, if you look at the biohacking community, it's very interesting to me to see a growing community of people that are very mindful about what they eat, about exercise, they track progress, you've got the, it's called the quantified self movement. And if you were to look at people that are very successful in different fields, you could probably map a lot of habits and routines, ethics and, and values that go into it. Surprisingly, or Unsurprisingly, a lot of these people actually read books. There is a book that I read in 2019, just before the pandemic, perfect time, called Deep Work. And I was fascinated for good and bad reason at how simple the premise of the book is. If you want to get shit done, real shit, unique, new, differentiated shit, you have to unplug and do deep work. If you spend all your day answering emails and tweets and whatnot, it's just noise. You're never going to be different in it. Nothing's ever going to change. You need that space to really right. multiple ideas. Too, yes. And this really comes down to the lowest common denominator. It's easy for people to get by with the noise every day if we just see other people doing that. So we need to have visibility into the people doing deep work and hopefully be inspired by it. It's shit because whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, the market has a way to slap people around into where their choices send them. I think that this is where the blockchain component comes in. If you were to look around the world and you assume that everyone is self-sovereign and then you switched on and they're going to make all the best choices to be super successful, the reality is that in most of the countries around the world, regardless of the choices that you make, it is your environment that constrains you. Most like the corruption, cheap governments, whatever, cry. And that's what people get excited. So it's also like a self-realization journey. And if you look at the Bitcoin max, Bitcoin community in general, they're very raw to those principles. Like not your keys, not your coins. Right. This is not a bank. This is not the nanny state. You have to take ownership of your money. The further we go along, it is getting more user-friendly. But I think, or I'd like to think, for the truly decentralized projects, we just keep building on top of those principles. Be like, okay. You need to take ownership of the shit you do on chain. It is your money. You have access to every contract and all the data. And we will liberate you from the constraints of the geographic world or that your surroundings may have put on you. Does that make sense? Yes. That, I guess I can build on top of it. That's why I like decentralization and diversity or plurality aspect of it. The, I, what I, Balaji, one of the oh my God. that were saying, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you read that when I was in the bathroom? Yeah. Did you yeah. cheat? You're a cheater, liar, stealer. Like one of the one of the podcasts that I did that I really liked about 
him saying was that you you can't build you can build centralized custodial services or as you're saying user friendly a little more convenient services on top of a de decentralized technology but you can't do the other way around that's the, that's why the fundamental basis layer of things need to stay decentralized because that gives you the freedom and the choice on which you can be a community for those who are trying to stay more lax. If you're going to Bahamas, for example, and if you just want to stay on a beach with a little straw hands, you don't want to do all your works on your own and build all that straw hands on yourself. You're, you went there to enjoy the beaches, but, and for that, you need services to be provided and conveniences and transportation and all that kind of infrastructure are already there. But these are the things that you could probably find and literally unlimited number of examples. I would have come up with a different one, the Bahamas one with the straw hats is a bit weird. But this is where people in the real world get frustrated with blockchain. And they're like, why are you guys so single-threaded? Why is the obvious shit in the real world not present in the blockchain world? If you go to the Bahamas, the simplest way to say it is someone's holiday yeah. is someone else's work day. Exactly. And you need to have that synergy on right. if there's no fat American spending money in the island. And if there's no people providing services, it doesn't work. Right. So in blockchain, is the same. Look, there's been a few high profile cases going back to Quadrica X, Canadian exchange. The founder mysteriously died in India, oh, in a region that is well known for faking death certificates. And he took the private keys of the exchange with him. M most recently, there was the multi-chain bridge. Yeah. The founder disappeared. And disappeared every time. He had, just disappears. Yeah. He was the one with access controls to some core infrastructure and a bunch of assets are compromised. The simplest example there is if the whole team gets in a plane to go to whatever rave orgy somewhere in the Caribbean and the plane crashes, is the particle still going to work? That's decentralization. Maybe you should use your experience, but that is what we call core infrastructure. Doesn't matter who is in charge and it doesn't matter if they go away. It still work. That's what Bitcoin is. Satoshi, most likely, from what I've seen on YouTube at 3 o'clock in the morning, deep in the rabbit hole, he died in 2013. The old email thread, all the patterns, right. yeah. wallets with billions of dollars that have really touched, most likely he died in 2013. But even if he didn't, he did superb work, always staying pseudonymous, never creating a cult around him or herself. And Bitcoin works. Sure, there are court retributors and the network keeps, it is maintained. Yeah. That's still be. It functions. Even if it were to look at a, something like the Ethereum yeah. EVM and validators. Validators contribute to the centralization, but if a validator fails, it doesn't take the network down. So you have a team running a validator because someone has to do it, but it's not a single coin failure. Beautiful tangents, by the way. Ludium. Yes. Why education? So yeah. Why Web3? I want to go there with the little retrieval, retrieval from the last co previous conversation that you mentioned. I think that is all the 12 meeting. We're going for six hours. <laughs> but yeah, it goes hand in hand. Like the decentralization aspect that I was mentioning that we were just discussing, I believe that is integral to every system. Like the current democracy as we know them was supposed to be that way. If any 
system if it's foundation or founding fathers. If I, unless I'm mistakenly wrong about the entire document, it is supposed to be that way, but it just loses track as it progresses on. What are the assumptions that the foundation document makes? Because there's a bunch of them, some explicit, some implicit. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Since the American independence said for I mean by it. And the democracy and the aspect, the, as the system develops, it evolves with the Congress and the Senate and the, the, the voting system and the electoral votes and like the whole things. For example, I'm basing this off of Tocqueville's Democracy in America. I really love that book, by the way. The word decentralization comes from, if not that book, at least during that era. And the driving force of America democracy, as Tocqueville puts it, or the strength behind it is the township and the vibrance of the election and the how it, through interest, the seat can change so frequently that the power will not be centralized. That was one of the arguments that he makes. And he argues, it's really funny because that really rings a lot of bell to blockchain decentralization. The, the people think it's unsteady and like very fragile and very frickle and interest oriented to an extent, but it works because it moves forward at all times. And to fragility, as we talk about it, it was one of the key factors in the beginning of the like the modern democracy as we see it, probably during Renaissance or like probably during any new historical period that we've seen. So from there, it goes, it's hand in hand with why Ludium is doing education. When we're doing Web3, education in general is about self-sovereignty, is about liberty, and is about how to think about yourself and what you want to do, where you want to go based on it. By touching on Web3, as I was mentioning, Web3 or crypto or blockchain is probably the last resort or the last societal or the beginning of the new societal linchpin where those thoughts are most vibrant. And that is where we can go back to the values that we adhere to, mainly lost, and retrieve it back. That's how I see Web3. So by touching on Web3 education, we're mostly doing an occupational thing. What I hope is that I don't want Web3 or blockchain to be another revolution in that will go back to, as you're mentioning about the age, become the conservative holdback that we've seen. I just don't want that. And for that reason, I believe thinking and being able to think on your own is very important. And maybe I will fail. It's a very grave task and I'm not very... I don't know if I'm qualified or good at it in any aspect, but I will certainly try to my utmost strength to be that way. That's why I'm doing Ludium and that's why I'm doing education. I thought you just wanted money from foundations. I know, right? <laughs> As always. I did. I'm probably going to put up a, a proposal through DevHub near social. I was talking to the developer how people about the but, the but for justin black work not yeah. just like yeah. no just to rip them off of course yeah. <laughs> foundation rating okay no, i think we're onto something good here so there would be some principles that i would probably summarize or distill from huckerville's work and, and yeah and everything that's been reached over the last 200 years and then we could probably Please. use that as a almost as a prompt if we had to distill what are the web three principles once again some are stated explicitly, 
this in some ecosystems, such as Ethereum, really doing Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Some are implicit right. by what we do, and they both evolve over time. So, if we're talking about the first principles of the American founding documents, there's actually several very interesting threads that are weaved in a masterful way to achieve perfect balance. The first one is big government bad. This is a time when they're breaking all British empire. They're like, where the fuck are we paying tax with king elsewhere? For right. historical context. Yeah. These are English yeah. people yeah. breaking off from England. Yeah. Like the notion of Americans yeah. didn't really quite exist in the same way back in the day. Sure. So the breaking off from an overarching monolithic institution that basically suppressed the fertile interest. The second point would be that you need to have many counterbalancing points. And you probably looked at both in the division of powers at the federal level, judiciary, legislative, et cetera, but also within the state and within the councils in the states. Mm -hmm. And that comes with giving each one of them very specific powers. This is what you can do. Yeah. You cannot go beyond that. Yeah. Some of the most interesting examples in modern days would be something like marijuana being illegal federally, but some states legalizing it. Yeah. So within the state, it can be done. Perhaps more controversially, something like migration being a federal, but some states choosing to basically not enforce it. So there's a very interesting counterbalancing force. There's a bit of, I think, healthy competition. You were to look at the New York, California, yeah. Texas, or, or, yeah. or supposedly at least. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm, res I'm reluctant to say whether it is preserved to the level that it was intended to this day. To be honest, that's one of the America's biggest problems that I see. Oh, 100%. And that's why it's always important to make the point that these things are a constant flux. Because one of the mistakes that people make more, most often is to think that things are stacked. Or the way that they are now, it's the way that they're always going to be. The most interesting one to me is delegated democracy. The document also assumes and acknowledges that everyday people are not in a position to lead a government. Be it because of the time commitment it takes, expertise, knowledge, whatever the case may be. So people elect, in theory, the Delegate. best person for the job. And if that one is not able to do it, they need to get the fuck out. And if you spread that thinking across every branch, local, state, federal, different institutions, then you inevitably have the best people in every single position keeping each other accountable. Clearly not happening. We don't have quite a well Yeah, we don't have to go too deep into it. But <laughs> I think that People we thought trying too hard would be able to identify that perhaps having the same person for 38 years in the same role or across roles will probably be seeing out in some up and coming talent that bringing some fresh ideas and energy. So this brings us to Web3. What are those driving principles, right? I've been very vocal since before the collapse of T's potentially creating the wrong culture. Or it bringing in new people that are just not aware of what we actually stand for. And the argument at times that maybe it's good, like a Trojan horse, focus on the weird shit here, well, build the rail infrastructure. But it'd be more a question of, yeah, what do we want Web3 to be there for? Mm -hmm. One of the people that we want to attract now. If I hand over the mind to you, because it's mainly relevant in answering the question. In the sense of conservatism. I don't think that it is a resistance to doing new things. Conservatism is actually quite the opposite. Conservatives are against doing the same thing that they already did 50 years ago. 
and that they know he doesn't work. And it's almost like a stronghold against, I want to call it ignorance or like the, the youth fervor to ignore history and just do the same thing over and over again. And I see it at university campuses. I was in Australia, which is like a smaller version of the US and it wasn't as crazy back in the day, but I had many conversations about socialism with university students in Australia, most very wealthy in the university. And I'm like, I grew up in Venezuela. Like every argument, I had real life experience and I could map out how that policy looks in three years time, five years time, in 10 years time, and the second, third and fourth order effect. These idiots were basically stoned, wearing brand clothes, driving a fucking Audi to university and wanting to rebel against their parents because they feel guilty for having a trust fund. So fuck that. In that case, I'm like, sure, we want to block progress, we'll block it because it's not progress. It's going backwards. If you look at real progress, like technology, I don't think that you'll find strong opposition against that kind of progress. AI perhaps is the exception now because it's so new and could be so meaningful. But in general, we don't have Luddites in government now, right? So anyway, principle for Web3. So conservatism, as you were mentioning, I would say is taking courage. And I use the word courage in context to Plato, Plato's Republic. In Plato's Republic, Plato describes courage as a Taking steps to preserve what you need to guard the city. So it's the Republic is the whole, the whole thing about guarding the city and guardians taking the preservation. And the word preservation, I think is really important in the sense that what are you preserving and why are you preserving that for? I guess one way of using analogy would be being a good father. I haven't been a father yet, but uh, being a good father, I guess, is doing the best for your son and to take care of him and him or her or they or them or them or whichever. So, yeah. And I guess I don't think it's a conservatism unless you are doing it for the, as you're saying, principle of the protocol, because it was set up with the decentralized foundation and self-sovereignty or any other values or user experience, scalability, those are what you need to preserve. Preserving means you got to bring more people into it. You got to invite yep. more people. And then for that, I mean, you, the reason why I got into your ecosystem is because I met you during last year, during Summer House, you remember the DSRB Summer House. I've been in crypto for seven years, six years. I heard about Nier, I heard about Solana, but I wasn't really open to it. I didn't know that. I didn't know what the technological steps there are. And layer ones usually tend to be a scam anyway. So why do I waste time looking at it to begin with? It's a really good point. And as you said, it, it became clearer to me. Conservatism, or at least a faction of it, there's other religious side. But if you were to look at modestly the economic wing of it, it's actually about bringing back to attention the core problem for which the solution was created. And this is a twisted logic. If the solution worked, that problem no longer exists. Yeah. They're saying we cannot change the solution that was put in place because then the problem will come back. If you look at something like corporations law, trust law, taxation, business environment requires very stable, predictable environment. When you want to deploy a lot of money, hire people, etc., these are things that can't be changed uh, out of the web. 
if you were to get to some specific example when it comes to blockchain, things like Bitcoin being fixed at 21 million, I don't think it is a Bitcoin maxi or right. everybody that would say, don't change it. Because Bitcoin is issued with fixed supply, right. 2008, in the midst of the financial, we've had at least true, if not to a certain extent since, even now. So it's crazy right. to have a 19-year-old say, say, fuck it, let's just change it and make it the same as Ethereum. Very different. And even Ethereum, it introduces a burn mechanism to make up for the fact that it doesn't have cap supply. So you can actually come up with very different and competing solutions. I'm actually not fixed one or the other. What I am fixed on is once you choose a path, you have to stay true to the course. Another example, near validators. Hard time. Most of them are not making any money right now. And there's been some validator groups wanting to introduce some particle changes, including one they call it UBI or some mm. shit. They want validators yes. with more delegation right. to receive less stake. And I was like, this is short-term thinking. Because mm -hmm. if news goes back to 20 bucks in one year time, you're all minting money. In the meantime, you're threatening an entire mm -hmm. market economy here, which right. by the way, even Ilya has weighed in very lightly saying, hey, Polkadot has that. And all it does is the big validator simply spins out as many validators as it needs uh -huh. to be on the threshold. And guess what that does? It pushes out yeah. small validators because yeah. we've got a limited capacity. So this is why I'm always very adamant on focusing on the problem and then trying to match right. out the potential solutions. That, because I'm a lawyer and not an engineer. But yeah, there's always like not good order effects. Now, this brings us to the Korea thesis. Can you give us an overview of the Web3 landscape in Korea yeah. and even what it is today? And this mm. should be a segue to ETH Seoul and how near has been growing right. in the ecosystem. And maybe a couple of pointers I've identified from last year, some very big players such as Clayton that were unknown to me until mm -hmm. they came into Korea. This year, an example would be Chroma. Up north is some very large infrastructure providers. Mm -hmm. DSRV is mm -hmm. a great example. Mm -hmm. And in general, it's a very robust market, mm -hmm. but it can be a little bit isolated where some people overseas may not really understand what's right. happening there. The Luna collapse may have also have some impact in the local right. market. So yeah, if you could just place us into Korea today, how is it different from other Asian countries? Why should mm -hmm. people pay attention about what's happening here? Korea are very quick tempered and very really? Yeah, they're very quick tempered. And they don't show it. Oh, they're, they're very <laughs> tempered. They're just like on time. You're saying you're diligent. You're being by the virtue of being diligent. That means you're always on foot. So you're just like constantly duperating. Or just associate a quick temper, more yeah. maybe with his action. Fuck uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not in that, but very fickle. Yeah. Okay. Very fickle in terms of like their choices. They sway a lot. And then the reason for that to sway is based on certain authorities. Um, they, they are very delegated to trust. It's ironic. Even in Web3, it's still there. For example, celebrities or, but celebrities, they know. Not, not like Mark Twain or no, Mark Twain's did. Not talking. <laughs> yeah. No. We're referring to like, Proxy validation. Yes, proxy validation. That's a big thing in Korea. And depending on that, and they're going to be very quick tempered. But at the same time, when the proxy validation is like trust is once there, they become very steadfast to that trust, like source of the trust at least. Would you define that steadfastness, Richard, of the word, as loyalty or more around the ability to execute? and just being very efficient towards that goal. Or both. 
I would say loyalty more so because I mean, I, I, I was describing more in terms of the entire landscape rather than a specific kind of landscape because there, there would be investors and there will be builders and there will be other people who are just tourists. Hopefully yeah. users. Uh, yeah, hopefully users. It's great that you mentioned users because I don't see there is a tangible Web3 application, not only in Korea, but globally that is reaching a user market fit like level. Like to be honest, because Uniswap, I love Uniswap and all MetaMask and what other DeFi services or whatnot, they, those are only for crypto oriented products. It's by the virtue of being finance. It's you're moving around crypto assets. I don't really see them as users, but they're more like web three people products. We obviously never stick to the agenda. So fucker. Yeah. Korea fizzes by. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Look, I'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. I think it's a really interesting point because the podcast is very aptly called Wild User Interviews. And the idea is to talk to people leading in their fields and then blast it out so that more people can like get insights on that area. I agree with you. Web3, if you were to look at the adoption curve, we're still in the innovators category. I think so. And yeah. uh, maybe we've got some early adopters, which happen to be the builders or the people right. that are passionate about right. technology. And it's very important to acknowledge that because that then forces us to think how to move it beyond how to move the lever forward. And I, I used to say two years ago that crypto had a big problem because the investors, the builders and the users were the same people. And if you think about Unfortunately, it, yes. that is the most, it's the worst possible scenario to have because looking into the balance of power, government, yeah, or even a web two, your investors are what keeps you in check. Projects, Supposedly, yes. Projects that run right. Yeah. Even if investors are dickheads and negligent yeah. and corrupt, whatever the case may be, if you run out of money, that's the end of the project. And investors will look at what you're doing, sure, but they will look more so what they should be at the user side. Have you validated the product? So it's not really the vision that you have. The vision is great, but you yeah. build to work. Your vision and the product design are very different. Like the product is meant to evolve based on the feedback from the users. Exactly. And if you and I here create a fantastic idea, we've had many good rants about potential products. That is like a minus three rough draft. We've got to consistently put it yeah. in front of people. And then people got to have those who actually are going to use it and have say on it. That's what like beyond Web3, that's what products are built. Just in general. Yeah. Are you going to get this microphone probably built that way? A hundred percent. Even if we use this microphone and we had to Google before how to use it. Yeah. It's got four settings, uh -huh. which address uh -huh. specifically the four user types identified. Uh -huh. They've got the one where it's just a front or a solo podcast or streaming. They've got one which is bi-directional that we're doing now. Two people sitting across from each other. They've got one that's better for instruments mm -hmm. and like acoustics. Yeah. And they've got a setting for omnidirectional. So it records. Entire or something for, like that. Yeah. For a group of people. Yeah. It must have been a lot of user research to identify who spends hundreds of dollars on a microphone and how can we tweak the settings of the mic to appeal to each one of those people. Exactly. And then you communicate that very clearly. Who am I? What do I want to use it for? I'll go to the website and it shows me some dude that looks stunning in a professional podcast studio. The reality is it's going to be me in a fucking basement with my perfect mic. Right. But at so, any rate, yeah, the product building. So if we were to apply these to Web3, 
this is what drew me to Nier because I saw Nier at the time it was the only blockchain I was talking about products. From the experience these days, maybe Aptos and Sui have that right. same product, yeah. I think, yeah. although they're much earlier stage. Yeah. And it's hilarious because even though Nier had that vision and it started working towards that vision back in the day, we were so early. There were some indications there yeah. that they were definitely way ahead of the curve yeah. and putting the work into the money with the mouth loss, things like the account model and yeah. the wallet. The account model is now being talked as account abstraction and all that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, but if you were to compare what we had back in the day with the tech stack that we have now, and when I say now, I'm talking like even the last two months, there's been some major particle upgrades, yeah. transactions, pastels, yeah. et cetera. Key takeaway is I 100% agree with you that there aren't many real world applications. My contention would be we just didn't have the tech before. So the challenge that we have now, both from the education side, which is where you're at, and the propaganda side, which is where I am, we need to acknowledge the shortcomings of the path and the grievances of everyone except Gary Gensler. Yes, it is true. It was expensive. It was right. slow. It was friction. It looked like dog shit. It might have been a bunch of 16-year-olds jerking each other off. But. As the technology evolves and improves, we really need to be able to invite writers right. to do more. So yeah, this brings us back to the Korea thesis. Yeah. So why has crypto had such a good penetration here? Then though it is very early stage and what could we potentially do here? True. Yeah. Recruit or the, so yeah, the quick temper and the delegation of authority that I was mentioning that because like. In all markets, there is also a stage of a market that in the beginning, it was investors. People were just investing and it was just about coin flipping. And that was the vast majority in Korean market, I'm saying. But the interesting thing though, even though coin flipping may be giving us some legal nightmare to these days, early, early stage, and this is why it is so yes. important to identify the stage of the market, validation are the investors. Somebody has to believe that these can grow to warrant to support it financially. Think about it like a Kickstarter. It is not an investment because you want to make money because that's not super public money. Any other number of assets, but you buy into the idea, into the philosophy, and you want to support it. You know, development needs money to grow. For example, that you're talking more about the beginning of the Bitcoin, for example, like the Bitcoin before 2013, Ethereum before 2017, like the whole altcoin, like the developers were actually like early advocates of Ethereum. They spun off like consensus or stuff like that. So the foundational standpoint, I think you're right. But in terms of the market, more people user side of things, people usually start with more as a coin bot because 90%, not everyone, of course, but 90% that I know come to this world by buying a shit coin, most likely a shit coin, probably less likely to be a Bitcoin. Because, I, anyway, so. This is why I love this conversation yeah. because there's a self-selection bias. See, I was about to say the opposite. Uh, most of the people that I know, uh -huh. or at least most of the people that I know that have actually made money, right. no one ever bought Bitcoin because they thought they were going to make money. Yeah. They bought Bitcoin because they subscribed to the ideology. Mm -hmm. And it was that belief, same for Ethereum, mm -hmm. same for other coins, right, right. ideally some of the altcoins now. It was that belief in the vision and their commitment to engineering and the code and the utility to stand for itself right. and solve problems to people. That's why they helped. Yeah. For I, pretty savage bear markets, 
And before you know it, a small investment over 10 years time, now they have something that is worth money, but it's not really, it's almost like a, the universe is rewarding you for staying true to the course and for working towards something that is worthwhile. Sure. Some people make money with Pepecoin. The vast reality is it's not that many. Yeah. Way more people lose money than make. And honestly, Pepecoin should probably get regulated because I can see how every time we have this like hype cycle, we actually move backwards on the adoption curve because most of the users fucking hate Pepecoin and they hate the NFTs. I don't even know what it means to be a user of Pepecoin, to be honest, but it, it goes with your, it goes along with your point. Probably so. IP related. So I, 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 IQ. <laughs> anyway. So let's get back to the point. Yeah, as you're mentioning, the reason why I'm mentioning is that I agree that I came in with that kind of mindset and like, I, I personally believe I didn't, I, I, funny story, I didn't make a wallet until 2021, until I started Ludium and started educational institution because I liked crypto. I was immersed into the whole thing about it, but I wasn't fully devoted to it. And I don't touch something that is not mine. When we, when Ludim decided as an organization that we're going all in Web3 education, or we, we started as NFTs, but Web3 education, that's when we started to feel that, oh, then as an educator or as a one who's delivering the message, I must know how to use all this. That's why I made my first MetaMask. So I'm that kind of person. This is probably a really good segue to Soul and just near protocol general. So I want to ask you about Soul. I witnessed something very strange. Well, it's strange. Right? Very unique oh. at Soul this year. I feel like there were more near speakers, mm. MCs mm. and hackers than Ethereum. Yeah, it was actually. It was, it was, yeah, because as I said, Koreans are not biased in that way because they are willing to susceptible to the new authority if they're the most simple example for it is that near put the most bounty on it they put the most bounty on any trap which is in a sense could be controversial but at the same time that derived people to see that oh near is interested in our ecosystem near is actually trying to do something. but always let's unpack it the bounty which even i joined the hackathon <laughs> for the first time <laughs> In my short life, I loved it. The bounty was literally anything towards mass adoption. And the reason why I think this is worth highlighting is because Baptists can sometimes be very restrictive because they're very inward. It's about me as a particle. You build something using my technology. And if that's a prayer, you almost have to shift your ideas And over time, protocols probably figured out that they're handing over a bunch of money for ideas that are not bad, but may have been artificially constrained and shaped to fit the bounty. And then there's no interest in continuing working with it. This is the point of the problem. Why people should do more user research. Why are these builders not interested in pursuing these ideas? You'll be contrasted with a near bounty. Allowing people to build anything with a mass adoption mindset automatically shifts from us and our technology to you and your idea. People should have spent most of the time thinking about their users and who are they going to serve? I think there is a fine balance between the two. It depends on who your target audience is. Like for those who are newly onboarding to Near, if they have already expertise in their business or like in their 
code skills and in there, if they're just good entrepreneur in general, like without being near or not, that I think suffice, that would probably be suitable for them to, oh, build your own dApp. You can do whatever, we'll, we'll give back the hackathon prize. I think that's suits. But right now in Korea, I, how I feel about it is that there aren't that many people who are used to near tech yet. So there is a fine line between the guidance, <laughs> guidance and the liberty. So at least like, for example, if you want to use BOS, you got to know what BOS is and then be able to use the libraries and be able to search them and then giving out small prices for at least figuring them out and be able to do something on it that will give developers some kind of a time or some kind of a skill that are required to utilize the technology. And then I usually believe that developers can make the services, but it shouldn't be the problem for developers to make services. It should be the service providers or user researchers or those who are actually going to be the entrepreneurs that gotta make the ideas. So you're hundred percent correct, but this is making a strong case for hear me out, Gary, that diversification and understanding the role that many different actors play in a truly decentralized ecosystem. If I am the dear foundation or proximity, I come in and I say, I don't give a fuck who does it. Here's $10,000 built with something in 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And obviously with that strong incentive in place, which we hope that stays there, then we could say, okay, if I know that there will be opportunities for Koreans to participate in these events, get money, which for 48 hours, it's a pretty good price and potentially continue to expand. Then we start to reverse engineer. Okay. What are all the current gaps in the market? Some of these are web three, take stack, maybe Rust, maybe JavaScript, maybe the notion of a blockchain operating system and BOS, as you mentioned, some of these are actually web two. Product think, trying to identify yeah. a problem and just right. research journey. Right. There's a lot of things that you can definitely try to unpack and each different service operator or community and focus on a different thing. Exactly. So I think that it's a good, and it was very interesting to see it in the wild. And the reason why I keep highlighting it is I've been to a lot of hackathons all over the world, and I am often introducing or pitching the near step. Up until recently, it was hard. There was no Very. differentiation or there was no strongly enough differentiation that was easy enough to understand for people to give a shit. But now it feels like we've finally reached a new era yeah. where the user experience, mm. not just for the end user, but for the developer yeah, themselves, yeah. that's starting to make a difference. How would you, going back to last year, DSRV house, what do you remember? Like, how would you describe what I was doing last year in Korea? I was intrigued how easy it is to set up a wallet because I know EVM system and I know the seat phrase and all the kind of stuff and made a wallet. It should have pulled up for me. Like, but describe it step by step. Like yeah. you're standing here and you see me across the room walking towards yeah. what happened step by step. Yeah. You walk towards me and you ask me, do you want to pull out? Uh, do you want to near pull? Well, you didn't even say near, you want to pull out. And I was like, okay, yeah. What do I like? How do I receive it? Because it's a like EVM user. I was like, do I need to give you my public key or what are you talking about? And, oh, you can do it in like three seconds and then you give me your phone. I'll give you the, I'll give you the link. And then we just gave me the link and then click setting up the wall from setting up the wallet to treat the poet. It was a smooth experience. It was, and it was mind blowing for me. Yeah. That was like, that's what you're getting to, right? I, it's funny because I didn't know first a recording that 
you came into the near ecosystem through that. So last year, we were using the Satori tech stack at the time. Satori has since gone in a different direction, uh, but Keypalmer has very right, much right. taken over that space and now it's like a top powerful. But at the time, Satori created a studio enabled me to issue any number of NFTs. And the pop-up functionality was super cool because I would open up my laptop, have the screen would be the QR code, which immediately takes people to the create wallet and redeem page. And there would be a code on the other side of the screen. So you must be at the event to get the code that refreshes every 30 seconds. Very similar to a Google Authenticator. So I walked around basically all of the DSRB house. And if, and at the time, I felt very out of place and very naughty boarding people to near at an Ethereum event and everybody having the same reaction. Very, very, everybody except two the VCs that did not invest in Nier were raised. And they literally refused to take it. They made a hypothesis in their mind and they just shut off to it. But it was very grueling work walking around with a bloody laptop, but it was very satisfying. And I'll see if I can find some of the photos and some of the videos from last year. People would basically create and choose your own name or your name near. And yeah, just three clicks while it creates. At the time, you still had to like, say your private C-Frank's private screenshot. Although I told people to like, at the time when I'm sorry, flight was that you can replace your private key and have recently issued a YouTube video how to do it. So even if you were doing it on the go, you know, less secure way, it's pretty cool that you can replace your private keys. So technically minded people really like that. And then there was a power. So I thought that was really cool. And yeah, in hindsight, it was a lot of work. Yeah. And it was a lot of effort to promote a tech stack that was super young. Yeah. And who knows, maybe in one year time, I'll think yeah. the same that we're doing now. Yeah. But it's just incredible how much it has advanced. Yeah. And what I really like about the recent year, the one, one year after, now I'm doing education on Nier. And now the reason why I got more immersed into Nier is that those tech stacks are ready to be used by the developers. And I believe if those are rightfully distributed and be readily handed over to them. I think they can build more Legos out of it and do some crazy shit. I actually proposed a mini thoughts to developer hub and trying to devise workshops and educational program and all that kind of stuff for them. From there, I believe that not just handing over the poet, but at least at more, more importantly, handing over the means to deliver those poems is ready giving that opportunity to developers on Andrade, I guess what I really want to stress to get the insights is you've been organizing ETHSOL for two years now, which is mostly Ethereum based. Right. Ethereum ecosystem is extremely welcoming. You engage with many other ecosystems. I want to learn more about that journey of doing this work, starting with Ethereum ecosystem, mm. EBM, and the journey into near. Specifically, some of the docos that you shared with me talk about some of the previous education workshops that right. you have done, VM-based uh, services, and some of the early wins that you have already had within the near ecosystem, including education yeah. or training for the winner, the hackathon, right. and other opportunities that are shaping up right. in the local ecosystem. So yeah, if you could just take us along the journey, that would be great. I first started with Bitcoin, obviously, in 2017, so... That was the only thing that I was interested. I wasn't really interested in Ethereum at the time. I saw a lot of ICOs coming in and I met some of them like Gnosis and Aragon people. Like they, when they first came to Korea, I met them and I talked to them and they were interesting people. So that got me interested. But the year that I really got into Ethereum was 2021. 
which is right before the boom and the next cycle. The whole notion of smart contract was interesting, but I we've only recently started debt education program. We've actually started with a non-debt education program, like oh, the basics nice. of what crypto is and what like how all these Web3 works and stuff like that. I want to so, load your website. Yeah. And I try looking at all Dancing. the community created content. Yes. Which is, seems to be a very rich source of information. But well, there is a language barrier. Yeah. Right now we're focused on create community. I mean for Look to be honest, sometimes these are the regional communities that make me bullish because it makes sense to have everything in the local language. Yeah. Sometimes I go to countries and I was like, why is everything in English? No one needs communities. Yeah. We are, if we get the right amount of initiatives, we will, we are trying to, translating isn't that difficult. It just takes money and time. That's it. Like I, I know translators and then I can paint them and then translate them, but it's not like a priority for us at the moment because we don't have a user base. Yet. The only like very tiny set way, and I mentioned this to the Open Web Academy in Mexico, I speak Spanish, so I can see what they're doing. But also as the grand issuing mm -hmm. body marketing DAO at the time, I have to relate to the council with the impact that they're having. And because of the website and most of the work is in Spanish, it may be harder to convey. I understand. Yeah, it's always good to be able to yeah for, for the project yeah. to the world yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Even if it is maybe a grand or maybe the source of inspiration for other regions. Personally, going back to Australia with a very strong... Korea model and a lot of ideas for things to do there. That really speaks back to what you were saying about ESOL. ESOL is inherently a global event. Like it's part of the middle and Erica is doing a wonderful job is trying to build, build a presence of builders in Korea to gather around. That's why I was not only I, but the whole Ludio was working with her. And as a part of that, it was. Very interesting for me to see how builder presence in, is growing through the year, but, but not only near, but also other chains as well. So I don't know if the multi-chain is ever at its door or not, because the whole tech stack that I've seen about world multi-chain was like funky for me. But at the same time, it is coming to a time where each chain other than EVM or other than Ethereum or layer two, so we say, are coming to its own presence and try to show what they're capable of. And Nier, as a developer friend hub, has a great opportunity for the newly onboarded developers that I am trying to teach. And I'm just trying to, I'm, it's purely out of an economic decision for me because like with it, it out of, without even the bounty or anything, I believe in, you can be a Solidity developer, but unless you're already like three years head, head start, it's going to be very hard for you to invent a new DM that's going to be like the next Uniswap, the next Blur, or the next whatever. But on Nier, I think you have more chances. That's what I see in Nier for, from the perspective of a developer. They probably won't know it, but I think that's true. So that's why I chose Nier Education rather than any other. The several things that are new, or I guess could be identified as a new opportunity. This is my perception, so let me know if you agree or disagree with any of them. I guess the first one would be Rust. What I often tell people is that Rust as a language is very young as well. Yes, right. And Rust actually were born out about the same time. Which is very interesting. 
I suspect that the, the Italian got the choice and he were to launch Ethereum today. Most certainly will be written in Rust. Every other modern layer one, but it's Solana, after Sui, et cetera, are written in Rust. So just that, it's a very interesting scenario where regardless of what people choose to build ultimately, yeah, because different use cases may suit different chains, identifying Rust as a very big, early growing market, huge. The other one is that Nero actually enables you to write smart contracts in Java. So we're actually teaching that. So just that creates a very unique, huge market for tapping into millions of people. I think it's a hundred million people yeah. that write JavaScript yeah. and for them to start doing so in a smart contract, which, which kind of taps into the third category of inviting people to reimagine what can be built in Web3 with this new tech stack. And that may have involved growing to people that may have had idea for years. The idea itself is not new. We may go back even to like the scenes of the metaverse and the, and the yeah. weird we couch, in the, in the beginning. weird couch I mentioned at the beginning. These ideas are not particularly new or novel. It's just that the technology was not there. So once again, it's almost going back to the beginning and say, okay, now that we have the core infrastructure, let's build. And every piece along the way, education right. is key. We're trying to have that presence and, and these start with free and local community. It, although it is isolated, I would like to bridge that because through these kind of events and through these kind of like tech stack and at least coders, if coders can speak in English, they can at least speak in codes. It's not necessarily bad that it is isolated. And I've always been a strong proposer. And even now, I'm an even stronger believer in the world is going to show to the United States how decentralized crypto is, because the U.S. may be able to kill its domestic crypto industry. It is not going to stop innovation around the world. And the message to Americans is whether you choose to stay in the United States and get a whatever job at McDonald's or whether you move to Dubai to escape your own shitty government. That's not the point. The point is local builders who give zero fucks who runs the SEC and what circus other countries are running. Local builders are going to take these tools, which are distributed, which are open source, which are available to everyone, and they're going to use them to solve local problems. No one should have the authority or has the authority to stop progress because they don't see any use for the technology. That's a bureaucracy that we have to reject. Yeah. If you already made money, if you're sitting in luxury, if you want to stay stagnant, the rest of the world is not going to stop. Like we have real problems and real opportunities that we're going to size. I know that we're very short on time. Yeah. So very quickly before we go, you briefly mentioned it. You've got some proposals coming over to DevHub. DevHub, for those that don't know, is the developer decentralized initiative on here. So there is scope for funding and supporting ideas. Can you give us a really quick overview of the sort of ideas or projects that you want to run in Korea and that you're seeking support from the developer hub? And maybe we could invite our listeners, the tens of millions of them, to drop by the developer hub. I'll put the links in the show notes and they can express their support. Hopefully after they listen to you for two hours, they'll get a little more sense of what I'm looking for. And they'll really be a good steward for the ecosystem. And yeah, yeah. The idea is just in the gist is a series of mini thons. So what that means is instead of a big hackathon, we're trying to have one mini thon every end of a month and then 
builders can join on workshops to every week. Well, let's say at the end of at like the last week, September of say August, Marathon starts. So until the September, every Saturday, builders can join and build and attend workshops and do their own thing and form a team and stuff like that during the, and then there, on each Marathon, there's going to be tracks that are some are going to be more creative, but others we are requesting to be more focused based on, a, let's say, key pump tech or like a proximity boss or like a wallet abstraction or stuff like that, that are integral to the whole new ecosystem, but at the same time, giving enough tech tools and stacks for developers to build their own ideas. The idea of this is continuity instead of a spontaneity, because having that presence that's ongoing constantly. It, I believe, is more important for builders and to seek the opportunity to be able to see. Also, at the end of every month, I can at least expect 1K if I join this workshop and be able to like ship something or deliver something. As the time progresses on, if we have enough track records and see what results come out, I believe there can be, it can be diversified into design thought, idea thoughts, or even bigger, like bigger families or stuff like that. But I wanted to final focus that I have is continuity. So there's got to be an education track ready, like just in place for people to continuously do it. And there's got to be workshop place and like workshop that are going to happen every month. I like it. We actually had a very interesting Twitter space conversation. Mm -hmm. The topic was this influence governance. It, it has its challenges. And there were two caps. If you were coming at it from the purely decentralized governance side, people were, even at the time, this would have been October last year, they were a little bit disappointed or frustrated with the quality of things being funded. And there were the guys like, this is rubbish. Like, this is not moving the needle. Why are we spending funds for these things? And then on the other hand, there were two developers, very good developers, actually, core contributor developers. And what he was saying was that the developing journey is different. And if you want the ecosystem to succeed, we need to find a way to support developers, but we need basically room to fuck around and find out how can we attract, train and retain the best talent exactly. without expecting them to earn the Facebook or day one. How can we have many experiments and many lessons? and just keep adding to the commerce stack of knowledge so that with every new developer that comes, not only is it fun, because now there's a lot of people that you can right. engage with, but also they can keep building on top. Yeah, exactly. That layer of value is extremely hard to quantify because we can see how we need it. We eventually reach the unicorn. It's just harder to go right. out of the ways. So I personally like the proposal. I think that it strikes the right balance between Continuous engagement, let's call it directed learning or focused learning. There's a community element right. to it. We'll definitely be in touch, but I think that this is a model that could definitely be replicated yeah, internationally. I think, so. I think so. And this is everything goes in circles. Maybe it's just how the women go on for too long. I would probably use these as validation. And maybe it's something they could even include in the original proposal, be like, hey, this is something that we've discussed with other community, Bro. other regional leaders interest in them doing the same. So funding this proposal wouldn't really just be funding 
our work on the ground, our participants, we could build the playbooks over time and then share them with others. So there's actually almost like two lines of tangible work that we will be doing and the work coming out of our community. But then there's a playbook. Google map yeah. for how this were planned and how this could be executed in the next. hundred percent. And like I can tell you as a open so very recently, decision maker in a grant making body, ideas are cheap and very few ideas for novels. Execution is fucking hard. Minithon, yeah. hackathon, gangathon. Yeah. Um, style. It literally doesn't matter how you frame it. Yeah. The challenge is actually Doing. getting it done. Like, I personally love idea thumbs, especially because they could be a really good way to reframe people's understanding of Web3, especially if you were to keep them. At least the basics of the technology of what can be done. But yeah, any like actual tangible playbook that reduces that barrier for any other operator to just put in place. That's always my message. Not everyone is suited to lead and to buy the opportunity, create a hypothesis or an experiment and then be able to execute on it, learn from it, try again. So when we do find those people, I think it's important to give them whatever they need and then, yeah. All right. Give them the money. Yeah. And also if any other, once it's, once it kicks off and goes a little bit, if there are any other new ecosystem, like those were EPOM, for example, I was reading their thoughts, but I didn't really understand all of it, but at least like they seem to be providing some kind of tools for developers build on top of it. So if they're, if they don't support all of it, at least like providing some kind of bounties on top of the already stack, um, that, that will be something that's congregating all these funds around different kind of resources, which will reduce the, some of the burdens for the developer about, but at the same time will be also in like comprehensive in terms of the, yeah. Event. There are many interesting philosophical musings on who founds what. So for instance, Foundation has a ton near that is technically the community fund and they're there to grow the ecosystem. And the best way to think about it is near should be transferred over to the people that right. have the ecosystem grow. Exactly. Especially when we look at the centralized governance, potentially voting through stake near part of the centralization and the ongoing decentralization, because it is decentralized now, Gary, is definitely rebalancing the ownership beyond early investors, core team, foundation, et cetera, to community contributors. So something like Keeper, they're in the process now to raise money because they are a project that will be operating as a project that provides a service. But you can also see how there's many different tiers and categories where it would make sense to put the community funds into it. Not because someone else couldn't fund it. If needed, probably other sources could step up, but it's when we ask the question, like what is the best use for those funds mm-hmm. must be distributed. So there I wouldn't be like, yeah, we were a shit ton of near, give it to the people, help it grow this. And yeah, wealthy. All right. I officially late for the appointments, but um... sir, we appreciate your time. We know it is not a very creative thing to be like, ah, it's fine. This means a lot to us. Thank you so much. Till the next time. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. 
Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.